Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Queens of Social Work podcast. I'm your co-host, Queen P. And I'm your co-host, Queen H. And we invite you all to join us this week as we laugh, share, cry, and learn through our experiences as women of color who happen to be social workers. Now, let's get started. As you know, April is Child Abuse Awareness Month, and we will continue our work by bringing your awareness to some of the issues that have historically plagued and continue to plague the child welfare service industry. You are all in for a treat today, because today we'll be talking with Queen C regarding disparities in child welfare. Queen C is a native New Yorker who has worked in the social service industry since 2004. She's worked with mentally ill, HIV positive, substance use, public assistance, and child welfare populations. Today, she will not only share her wisdom and experiences in the field with us, but her personal experience as the recipient of services that she put in place for her own clients for the past several years. So let's get started. Yes. So welcome to the show, Queen C. It's a pleasure to have you. Well, ladies, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm I'm actually honored to be here to speak with you ladies. Thank you so much. We're excited. (laughs) What Do you want to share a little bit about how we met? Do you remember how we met? Well, actually, uh, Queen P and I, we did our graduate studies together. We worked on our MSW degrees together. We both had a minor in substance use and that was quite some time ago. I believe it'd be fair to say at the infancy of both of our careers when we were just basically trying to figure out exactly what direction it would be that we would go to. Actually, I do remember when we first met, we were going into our substance abuse class with our wonderful professor. And I was like, who this girl? She look all right. Let me go ahead and talk to her because there weren't a whole lot of black people in the class. There was some Asian and some like maybe Yugoslavian or Russian and like maybe one other black person apart from the professor. So we were like, oh no, we gotta we gotta do this thing here. We gotta get together and be in each other's lives forever because that's just what we do. <laughs> I noticed right away that in class she was smart and was on it, and I was okay because I can't be hanging with no stupid people. Okay, so I was like, you know what? Let me be her friend, and here we are. Here we are, 12 years later. It's been quite some time. It's been a while. Yes, it's been quite some time. And so we have you on today as a result of us having a conversation recently about some things going on in social service industry and some of your experiences being a service provider, as well as receiving some services. So tell us a little bit about what setting you work in, what population you work with, and what are your credentials? Well, I, I'm, I'm currently employed in the child welfare setting, which is basically engaging families that are involved in the child welfare system, meaning that they may have some type of preventive services, meaning that they're receiving community-based services to assist them with whatever need they may have. Or they could have mandated services, meaning that they were the alleged subjects of an investigation of abuse or neglect, and the court mandated them to do some things. So I come in contact with families during a crisis period in their life. Either they've been mandated by the court to comply with services, or either the school 
or their doctor recommended them to community-based services. In regards to my credentials, I am a certified school social worker. I am also a seminar and field instructor, meaning that I supervise MSW interns at a BSW or an MSW level when they are obtaining their hours for their degree. I'm also a KSAC-T, which is a certified alcohol substance abuse counselor trainee because baby girls did not get an opportunity to sit for the licensure exam as of yet. Let's see what else I got going for myself. KSAC, SIFI, LMSW. Oh, and the 14 years of service in child welfare. So here I am. Go ahead, girl, with all the credentials. Come okay, on. all the letters behind her name. Listen, okay. elemental P, okay? <laughs> I love it. Yes. And it's so important. You know, we talk about just getting through grad school, that being the bulk of the work, and then what you do as you come out as an MSW, you know, in order to be designated as a social worker to begin with, you have to have a BSW or MSW. And after you go through that master's program, it's all about filling up your toolbox with the tools you need to really thrive and survive in this career. It's way beyond just, you know, one particular industry. The, the social work degree can carry you so, so far. But of course, it's up to you to decide what you want to do with that. So thank you for sharing, Quincy. Not a problem, ladies. I think for the most part, the social work degree is absolutely one of the most flexible graduate degrees that you can obtain because mm-hmm. it opens up so many different tracks. You're not just stuck to one thing. Yeah. Uh, my, I, I actually have three separate degrees. My associates is in social science. My bachelor's is in psychology and the master's is in social work. I pointed that out to say that it took some playing around to figure out exactly what it is that I wanted to do. Initially, I thought psychology, oh, I want to be able to do cognitive behavioral therapy to change people. You know, when you think about extreme cases of people with agoraphobia, you know, you think about, oh, I'll be able to sit down and do therapy with this person to change them. But As I went on in in my pursuit of my education, I realized that psychology really was just running tests. You're looking at black and white questions all day long. There's really no interaction with it. And then here's social work, where you're actually looking at people in their environment. Mm -hmm. And with the social work degree, it gives you the opportunity. You can teach, Mm -hmm. you can do research, you can throw up your singles and do individual counseling. Yeah. And you can administrate. You also can advocate. So it's just so broad where, you know, when you get tired of one area, you can say, hey, all right, I, I, I've done what I needed to do here. Let me see what's going on over here. Exactly. Absolutely right. So in an effort to really address, you know, the topic at hand, this month is Child Abuse Awareness Month. So Can you tell us about your experience working in child welfare? Absolutely. So when we say child welfare, I I need the audience to understand that we're looking at the structure. We're Mm -hmm. actually looking at the system. And if if there are social workers that are tuned in, then we know about systems theory. 
how once you're engaged in one system, the interconnectedness to the other systems. So most families that I come in contact with, they normally have had past or current involvement with the criminal justice system as well. Mm -hmm. The likeliness of you having a shared case with a probation officer or a parole officer is, is, is very likely. Mm-hmm. When we think about the systems, we have to look at the fact that the child welfare policy has not been amended since 1997. And in 1997, that's when they had this paradigm shift and they created ASFA laws, mm-hmm. which basically put a time limit on things because prior to that, we had something called the foster care drift where children would get lost in the foster care system uh, due to a lack of planning. So when they came up with the ASFA law, they said the parent has 15 out of 22 months to plan towards their child's reunification. And if they fail to plan during that time, that the agency has the ability to file for a TPR, which is a termination of parental rights. When we look at this time frame, what's missing there is even though we say these 15 months, if mom decides to come in on month 14, day 28 and start services, it restarts that time clock on that child that's currently in care. That's one of the barriers that we have here because we have this policy but yet we're not really holding the the respondents accountable because we are allowing the child to continue to remain in the foster care setting every time their parent schedules an intake appointment. Mm-hmm. In regards to child abuse, most cases, and I've been in the field, honestly, since 2005. Um, prior to that, I was working with public assistance most of the cases are not abuse cases. They're really not. This is true. A lot of them are neglect. And, yeah. and, and a lot of the neglect is a result of poverty and, mm-hmm. and, and a lack of education in regards to the resources that are available to the families. When, when we say abuse, that has a different parameter. A, a working definition of abuse is to say that someone consciously made a decision to harm this child. Um, In child welfare, there are a lot of isolated incidents. And for those of us that are parents, you know, your kids, they can can push you. This pandemic, we've seen an increase in physical abuse, substance abuse, and domestic violence. Why? Mm -hmm. Because we have people that are trapped inside of the house together. Mm -hmm pre-pandemic, we all got up and we went somewhere. The parents went to work, the kids went to school. You know, we got some time away from each other. But as we've been practicing the social distancing and and families are confined to their home, we see an increase in the level of cases that are coming in. And um, for the most part, it, it is with the domestic violence and the physical abuse. And the reality is that Nobody has a break from each other. But what we do look at is we, we consider the history. We consider the vulnerability of the child. We consider the threat of harm. And we also consider the parent's protective capacity. Now, those are all jargon terms. When I say the parent's protective capacity, 
I'm speaking in regards to the parent's ability to maintain the safety of their child and their care. When I speak about the vulnerability of the child, we consider whether or not there's any community oversight. Who's able to see this child in the community? Is the child at an age where they can articulate their concerns or disclose something that may be inappropriate that's going on in the home? And the threat of harm, we're basically looking at the likelihood of repeat maltreatment occurring. And what we consider when we look at that, we are looking at the history, whether or not the family has any prior history with the agency, whether or not the parent was a product of the child welfare system themselves during their childhood. These are all things that we consider when we look at the likelihood of the neglect or the abuse reoccurring. In regards to child welfare as a whole, you do see differences. The differences when making a risk or safety assessment, it varies. And it's unfortunate, however, assessments are based off of support. So to give an example, um, I'll provide two scenarios that have the same safety concern identified. Mm -hmm. So a case can come in for Tamika Jones, who got three kids, and Tamika lives in NYCHA. And hold on, hold on. So for those of us who don't know what NYCHA means, what is NYCHA? Jargon, jargon, yes. jargon. And this comes from years of having the right things up. In New York City, housing authority. Okay. So we have a young lady that lives in housing, which is public housing, and she has her children. And this young lady drinks a, a, a bottle of Hennessy a day, maybe the $15 bottle. What is that? A fifth or something, right? So she gets the case. And then we have Sarah that has two children, but Sarah lives in a, a wonderful condominium and Sarah's drinking a $200 bottle of wine a mm. day. Maybe a little KMS. Okay. So the differences in these cases, what's been reported on both cases, is the alcohol consumption of the mm. primary caretaker, which is the mother. Now, at the launch of these investigations, they're going to be completely different because the young lady that's in NYCHA, we're looking at the fact that she lives in public housing. We're looking at the fact that she was in the system as a child. We're looking at the fact that she has two or three domestic incident disputes on file with her children's father. We're looking at the fact that the neighbors report that um, her and the children's father are in verbal disputes quite frequently. Then we have the other mother that lives in a condo that has a nanny there while she's drinking her $200 bottle of wine. This mother also has a housekeeper that comes in twice a week. And the same mother has someone that comes to prepare meals for her child. So when we're looking at these two families, the, the common denominator is the alcohol use. However, when making a safety decision, we're going to be a little more firm with the mother in NYCHA because we're looking at her support. We're looking at the fact that she's drinking Hennessy and the boyfriend is beating her up and she doesn't have anybody to keep her kids. So that means that if she drinks the whole fifth of Hennessy and passes out, who's going to care for her children? Mm -hmm. 
what's going to happen to her children as a result of her passing out? What can happen if once she's intoxicated, her and the children's father get into a verbal dispute that escalates to a physical altercation? And whenever we're making safety decisions, we're always measuring risk associated with prior incidents and the likelihood of that being repeated. Now, when we look at the other mother that had her $200 bottle of wine, yes, she passed out too, but the difference is the nanny is there to feed her children and to put them to bed because the cook made the food, the nanny bathed the children, and whatever mess the mom left behind, the housekeeper cleaned up. So what happens here when we get to the crossroads, when we get to the end of the of the case or the involvement with the family, our NYCHA mom is being referred for services. We may even ask her to complete a KSAC assessment. We know it's not recreational because it's daily, but we want to see whether or not this is a dependency and how this is impairing or impacting her ability to care for her children because she lacks this support and, um, you know, she's drinking hardcore alcohol. So we're definitely going to look to get a KSAC assessment for her and we're going to want an extra set, set of eyes on her. So it's very likely that we're going to put preventive in, in the home to continue to monitor the family for six months to a year to, you know, kind of have some eyes on this alcohol use. In regards to the other family that has the housekeeper and the cook and the nanny, we closed the case down. Mm. We closed the case down because the children are safe. The children are safe because there's three other people that are there to provide care for the child. So the concern is not there. If mom passes out, the nanny is going to bathe the children. If mom does not cook the food, the children are still going to eat because the cook has cooked the food. If the children make a mess or the mother makes a mess, the housekeeper is going to clean the house. So this is what it looks like. Poverty is not neglect. However, poverty definitely plays a role in a parent's ability to be able to meet the basic needs for their children. Definitely. Wow. Very. Because you laid it all out. All of the pieces. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Are you a Caribbean American? Are you looking for a podcast that truly speaks to your culture and identity? Look no further than Carry On Friends, the ultimate destination for all things Caribbean American, hosted by me, Carrie Ann. Dive deep into topics such as culture, heritage, and everyday life through the unique lens of the Caribbean American experience. You'll walk away feeling more connected to your roots. Follow and listen on Apple Podcasts so you'll never miss an episode of Carry On Friends, the Caribbean American experience. Your Caribbean American community awaits. And we, are, we appreciate that. And, you know, as we, we talk some more, you know, I guess we could delve a little deeper. But I think when people see child welfare or that the fact that people are involved with child welfare, they always look at you abused your child, you neglected their child, but they're not looking at the different factors that can lead to this happening, right? To the neglect of a child or 
the reasoning for children coming into foster care and why there, you know, communities of color may have more kids in foster care than, you know, white communities? Well, I mean, honestly, we get involved whenever there's a concern. And a lot of people don't know, but you can voluntarily place your children mm-hmm. into care. And every family that's involved with child welfare services is not the result of an investigation. Some people just need the support services. And we call those advocacy cases where there is Mm -hmm. no investigation attached to it. It's just that, hey, the mother's overwhelmed. They have a special needs child. They'll Mm -hmm. benefit from homemaking. They'll benefit from a childcare voucher. They'll benefit from you know, after school services, whatever supports can be provided to the family. It's kind of, I don't know. I, I, I feel like your experience is going to be what you make of it. I, I equip my clients with, with the information that they need, mm-hmm. where they're able to make an informed decision, but I also hold them accountable. Mm-hmm. You got child wealthy involvement because something happened. And that's the elephant in the room that has to be addressed. Delivery of services, especially post-pandemic, um, with everything being done virtually, there is a lag. You know, it, it takes longer to get things done because there are a shortage of providers. However, the face that child welfare has in the community is not really who it is because if you want the help, it's there. Mm -hmm. Um, There's so many programs. I have a colleague who is the executive director of SCO's um, youth program. Previously Mm -hmm. just left the the fatherhood initiative program. And when I say this program has everything, it has everything that you can imagine, anger management, parenting, Mm -hmm. batteries accountability, job readiness, GD, like whatever core service that you would need is available. You look at the the services that they provide for you, the help. You know, as working people, if we're behind on our rent, we ain't got no um no way out. But these agencies, they pay you your rent arrears and mm-hmm. set you up with some type of subsidy to subsidize your rent moving forward. They provide you with a child care voucher. I have a young child. I pay $1,000 a month out of pocket for child care. Mm. The agencies, they may not be personable, but they are designed to aid those who are in need. So this goes back to, because I kind of went off on a tangent. This goes back to what I was saying in regards to poverty and neglect. So we, we say that neglect is not poverty, but poverty can cause neglect. However, the way that we look at it is, okay, you may not have it, but if you get involved with these other systems, right? Because we, we're going to involve you in the other systems because all the systems go together, then you'll be all right. Because if you apply for SNAP benefits, you have enough to uh, get a nutritious meal for your children. Mm-hmm. If you have Medicaid, we know that you can go get the immunization shots for your children and, and, you know, keep them from getting everybody else sick. 
we know that if you get full-blown public assistance, that there will be money put towards your, your housing costs. Then they have these training programs where you can get some type of certificate to help you go out into the workforce. Oh, that's right. The most important thing is deception. And this is this is the thing when I'm working with families. If you're coming into this experience with a negative view, then you're going to have a negative experience. If you're mm-hmm. coming into it looking to actually gain something from it, then you'll benefit from it. Because you can only lead a horse to water. You can't make it drink it. They have to take that first sip to see that it's, it's refreshing before they can benefit from it. So all those services may not be rendered as expeditiously as they should be. They are there. And it, it really boils down to the recipient's perspective and their level of engagement and their change readiness level. Whether or not they identify the behavior as a problem, because if the client doesn't see it as a problem, then they're not going to change. Mm-hmm. So there's so many factors, you know, one of the things as, as, as we move forward with the Black Lives Matters movement, it, it definitely shook up a lot of these systems in regards to perspective in the way that populations are treated. You know, we, we're, we're paying more attention into connectedness that these systems have when we have a, a person of color that's involved with public assistance criminal justice, child welfare, and they may have some some underlying mental health or substance use as well. So when we when we look at this, we look at all of these different professionals that are all coming with tunnel vision and saying, hey, you need to do this, hey, you need to do that. So what we see as we're moving forward now, we're looking at more of a collaborative effort of these different schools of thought coming together to work collaboratively for what's in the best interest for their client. And sometimes this can be perceived as overwhelming because you got five different people telling you five different things. So lots of times they they, they shut down and they don't want to comply. So it's, it's a lot of different things, but in child welfare, the, the child is our client. So mm-hmm. we're always going to advocate for the child. It's always going to be for what's in the best interest of the child. Mm-hmm. However, we want to work with the, the parents because they are the primary caretaker of the children, which is why we offer the rehabilitative services to the caretakers. I'm not going to just say parent because every child isn't raised by the parent. It could be a cousin, an aunt, mm-hmm. you know, grandma, but mm-hmm. we work with the caretaker. In, in, in regards to ensuring the safety and the well-being of the children. Right. So you touched on something that I wanted to really dig a little deeper into in terms of the intersectionality, right, um, about being Black, being female, being a mother. So the next question is really, like, when you're dealing with children and families, service provision is quite varied, right? And you talked a little bit about how that looks and Um, neglect and poverty and the impact of that and those things. In your practice as a social worker, do you consciously think about the intersection of who you are uh, and what role it plays, if any? Absolutely. The ability for your client to be able to identify with you and have some 
level of common ground speaks, I don't know, it speaks mountains because as a social worker, you're supposed to be a safe space. You're supposed to be the place that they can come and tell you their most deepest, darkest secrets without being judged. No one wants to confide in someone, you know, the old saying that's sitting high looking low. Mm. If I'm going to talk to somebody, I want to talk to somebody that can identify with my experiences. And if you don't look like me, that means it's very unlikely that you grew up in a community like me. It means that we didn't have the same experiences. I came in this field, I was young. And a lot of times I used to hear, you know, I'm old enough to be your mother. You don't even have no kids yet. You know, and, and these are things you got to fall back and you got to respect. Mm-hmm. Definitely who I am plays a role in the way that I support and advocate for my families. Because, you know, it's very unfortunate because as a social worker, we're taught to respect the self-worth and dignity of a person, right? Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, society does not. Society sees social status. Society sees, what's the word I'm looking for? Economic status. That's what I was looking for. So socioeconomic mm-hmm. status. We 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 do pay attention to socioeconomic status, and there are biases that come along with it. You know, looking at me, you wouldn't think that I had all those letters around my behind my name because I look like an around the way girl. And until I open up my mouth, you won't know. But it shouldn't be. If I am just an around-the-way girl, does that mean that because uh, Queen P and Queen H have an education that they deserve to be treated better than me? Not at all. Does it mean that because I don't have an education today that I won't have one five years from now? Everyone deserves Does it mean because I have an education today that I won't lose my, my mind five years from now? Will I still be respected as that educated person? That's a so great point. this is why you always have to respect the people's right to self-determination and you treat everyone with dignity and self-worth because mm-hmm. status changes. Okay. Your social status changes, your economic status changes. Listen, I've been on this job a long, long time. At the beginning of this damn pandemic, I was like, hold up. I might be unemployed. Yep. Now Yep. Because if, if they had to let us go, they had to let us go. Mm-hmm. But see, I'm I'm not a prideful person. I was ready to do me some Instacart and some Uber Eats and do whatever mm. it is that I got to do. But right. I, I just point those things out to say that as a society, we have to stop being so judgmental and putting people in boxes. Like yeah. I said, you can be on top of the world today because... What they say, a billionaire today and your damn stock crash and you're, you're poor again tomorrow. Isn't that like, um, it's like that movie, uh, Trading Places, right? Absolutely. Eddie Absolutely. Murphy and, and then the white guys. And then all of a sudden, guess what? They had nothing but a dollar. <laughs> okay. Ain't nothing but a dollar. What was the guy named Mortimer and something? Was Mortimer it Mortimer? And I don't remember the other one. Mortimer. Girl, I don't know. <laughs> I can't remember, but mm. this is this is why we have to be 
mindful that things are temporary and things change. Because like I said, I could be rich today and tomorrow I can be broke. Yeah. I can be prolific mm-hmm. today and insane tomorrow. Mm-hmm. But regardless of my economic or my social status, I still deserve to be treated with the same dignity, self-worth, and respect. They're sitting in the emergency room because you're coming to question them to find out how that child got that third degree burn. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's, it's just a lot of things in regards to how, why, and how things are the way that they are. But in regards to implementing change, change has to stop. This didn't happen overnight. Like I said, the last time that they touched these policies were back in 1997. Prior to that, all of these things come out of the New Deal in 1935, which is where the Social Security Act and temporary assistance to needy families, all of those things were created back then in 1935. We haven't had anything like that until now with the stimulus. So now is the time that they are revisiting these policies in these prehistoric systems because things have changed a lot. We're looking at 1935 to 2021. We're looking at almost 100 years where these things have not been updated. But in regards to how do we impact implicit bias, structural racism, structural oppression. It, it you know, it's, it's so many names that go hand in hand that are all speaking to the same concern. It starts with the policy. The policies have to be reconstructed. The policies have to be in alignment with the current status quo. As social workers, we're always going to be involved with whatever the current state is. When it was Black Lives Matters, we was with Black Lives Matters. Now we're dealing with the pandemic, we're dealing with the pandemic because the, the, the pandemic has created mental health. When, when I say mental health, I'm being very broad, but we have to look at the people that are grieving their loved ones. Mm-hmm. We have to look at the people that become depressed because they can't mm-hmm. go outside. We have to look at the people become anxious because they don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. And we we have to look at the people that have become paranoid. I mean, there's so many different mental health concerns as a result of just this global pandemic. You know, and as social workers, we're change agents. It's our role to come up with, what do we do? How do we address this? You know, we have to be able to embrace change and, and we got to be creative. We got to be innovative. You know, we got to come up with how we're going to support our families. How are we going to provide support for our client? That's the main goal. Um, I kind of went off on a tangent, but, you know, it, it has to start from the top and trickle down. The policies definitely need to be revamped. In addition to the policies being revamped, they need to retrain staff. Staff needs to be retrained. There needs to be more punitive disciplinary action for overt instances of systemic racism or systemic injustices. Because the reality is we all grew up with a stereotype. 
whether we, we want to acknowledge it or not. These are just things that you grow up with, that you hear about. And, and the most important thing is being able to identify those stereotypes and make sure that they don't impact your work or the population okay. that you're working with, that you're not having any counter-transference while working with your families. But when we talk about change, we talk about um, definitely policy, after policy, retraining staff, and in regards to people who have been a victim of any type of racism or injustice, the best advice that I could give is that they actually put it in writing and send it out and follow up with it. Once it gets on the, the big wig desk that it needs to get on, something to happen, it'd be addressed. But so I this don't mean is, to interrupt, so I, I apologize because that's actually moving into what we the want next to question. discuss. Yeah, so the next question, and actually you're touching on it, so I'm going to let you continue, right. but I just want to, you know, give it out. Have you seen any differences in service provision? And if so, what are those differences? And in your experience, what do disparities in child welfare look like? So you kind of started touching on it. So that was great. That's why I just wanted to interject a little bit. No problem. You know, service delivery is service delivery. The biggest barrier in regards to parents that live in an impoverished community is that they, the services are not in their community. So they're looking at a double fare zone where they may have to take a bus to a train. Mm -hmm. So what mm -hmm. does that do to the client's motivation level in regards to going to comply with a service that they don't even want to do? Mm -hmm. You know, it, it basically turns them off or if there are providers in their community, the waiting list is very long. Because there's less poverty in, in different neighborhoods, they're going to have a less amount of cases. And because they have a less amount of cases and the providers are located in their community, they're going to have more availability to services than the, the people that are in a community where there's a, a surplus of cases. Mm -hmm. We got to pick on Brownsville because that's just what it is. You know, right there on Sutter Avenue, you got, what, four or five housing developments. Any agency that services that community is going to be overwhelmed because mm -hmm. of the dynamics of the community. So if we look at someone that's looking for service in that community, there may be a three to six month wait period before they can actually get an agency assigned. Where if we look at someone in Bay Ridge, they may have be able to initiate services within 72 hours. Mm -hmm. Why? Because the government provides money for a certain amount of slots for each individual community. So if the slots aren't being filled up, this is where we get telling our Brownsville family to travel to Bay Ridge to go receive the service because that's mm -hmm. where the availability is. To clarify, Brownsville and Bay Ridge are communities in Brooklyn for those listeners that are not from New York. So Brownsville would be your, your, your poverty neighborhood that has a lot of public housing and Bay Ridge would be a community where you have homeowners, more of a working mm -hmm. community. So 
when we look at it, it's really just the availability of services and the accessibility to the service for the family that is being offered to. I think in my experience working in child welfare, when I did, this was part of the issue. And so we had to make sure, you know, we would have, first of all, the agency was far away for some of the clients as well. Mm -hmm. It was in the quote unquote better neighborhood. And so Mm -hmm. families coming to visit their children there, sometimes the parents wouldn't make it there because it was far for the parents mm-hmm. to make it there. So that was one thing. It wasn't in the community in which they live. It wasn't around the corner. You're talking about being tucked in the nestle of a, a of a suburb. Absolutely. Or more of a suburban area. So we would have to, a lot of times, like the parent is saying, listen, I can't afford to take this many bus and trains to go somewhere. So we would have to provide them with Metro cards so that they can get on the bus and train so Mm -hmm. that they can do the services, right? And so we would find that a lot of these visitations, these supervised visitations that were supposed to take place at the agency, sometimes would not happen. The parent would not show up. They would not show up. And they wanted the visits to be at their house or in their neighborhood. But we had to tell them, listen, your child just came into care. The first step is a supervised visit. We need to see how you're interacting with your child. Mm-hmm. So you can't do that. You got to come to this agency. So then that sets up a bad relationship sometimes mm-hmm. with the parent because they're like, you know, y'all already done took my child. Hold up, miss. I wasn't there. I did not come to your house and come up and take your child. That's first and, first and foremost. Secondly, I get it. I hear you're upset, right? But you want your child. And honestly, your child wants you. And I want to help bridge that gap, right? And so in order to do that, this is what we need to do. So how can I help you do that? And that's the thing. Lots of times it's hard to meet the family where they are because they don't trust the system because they've had a poor experience with the system in the past. So Mm -hmm. Engagement is is definitely key to the success or unsuccess of your involvement with with your families. Being able to encourage, empower, uplift, and just the the basis of being able to establish that positive rapport with them to get them to trust you, to work with them, you know, to, to establish that partnership. And I like to say partnership because I tell them, this is your life. This is about you. I'm here to help you, but it's about you. You know, what your willingness. And I tell them all the time, I'm not going to work harder for you than you work for yourself. Listen, preach. You know, how much are you willing to give to get what you want? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But services are services and it, it, it really... I don't know which is worse to have co-pays and um, get a little bit more expedited services or not to have a co-pay and, and, and have universal free health care, you know, I don't know. But I do know that we're in America and economic and social status are always going to matter here. Mm-hmm. Until that's that's just the, the bottom line. Yeah, there has to be a fundamental change. 
yes is always going to be considered because financial freedom it affords you things mm-hmm. you know if you have good health insurance you can pick what doctor you want to go to mm-hmm. if you have medicaid every time you go to the doctor is somebody different pulling your chart calling you chart number 12846 so you know mm-hmm. it's a lot it's a lot of things that need to be revisited because the reality is that they give such a large budget to social services that these funds just need to be reallocated mm-hmm. differently so that mm-hmm. they can impact the areas that they need to impact because mm-hmm. what we're looking at now and in child welfare with the paradigm shift they have moved to evidence based practice which mm-hmm. is basically holding the agencies accountable for the services that they are providing because when we look at repeat maltreatment we say well if the family was serviced by your agency for a year why are they coming back into the system with the same concern that they were referred to your agency with mm-hmm. what have mm-hmm. you done with this family over this year you're not being paid just to provide case management you're supposed to be providing therapeutic services so mm-hmm. now that we have these checklists in place we are seeing better outcomes and mm-hmm. and you know that the goal is to have optimal outcomes yeah agree that's really good so i have two more questions uh kind mm-hmm. of wrap up with what we can do when we see disparities and i'm sorry queen p um just briefly it makes a difference what you know mm-hmm. yes in regards to just receiving services in my personal life or whomever a family member just going into the hospital they treat you you know they they brush you off and tell you anything and then once you identify yourself as a as a professional the the, oh, the way that you treat it changes because now they mm-hmm. acknowledge you now they speak to you like you're a person they don't mm-hmm. see you until your credential is there until you pose a threat until you're in a position of being able to report their behavior mm-hmm. so then this is when they acknowledge you and now you know they want to work together with you but as long as you're there and they believe when they look at you when you look at me you say oh she got referred here by somebody mhm you know i'm going to do whatever just to get do it but then when i open my mouth it's like oh sugar honey i see mm-hmm. where where did this girl come from mm-hmm. so in regards to being on the receiving end it was i've i've had several disheartening experiences looking at my fellow colleagues and their their condescending tone when speaking mm. with me prior to knowing that i was a practitioner as well the the lack of integrity and their service delivery in regards to being able to keep a commitment for something that they signed up for you know just being black in america and then being a woman in america you know they they don't expect you to have anything going for yourself so they treat you as if you don't but in regards to 
if you or someone you know is being mistreated. Yes. (laughs) The best and the only thing that you can do is put it in writing. Um, One thing that I do know in all of these years of service delivery, if it's not in black and white, it did not happen. You can call and make a verbal complaint, but that's not going to get you the result that you want. The result that you want will come from you putting it in writing and following up with it because there's definitely a chain of command in every institution. Every institution has a policy that they are governed by. And what's key is knowing what, what policies the agency is governed by. And if they violated that policy, that's the way that, that you get the results that you want. You identify it, you write about it, you bring it to their attention and you hold the agency accountable for it. Thank you very much for that. That is definitely the the philosophy that I believe in. Mm-hmm. And I absolutely take every opportunity to do so. <laughs> that I would sure. encourage everyone Lord to write Jesus. as many letters and as many e- shoot as many emails and CC up your grandmother, your auntie, your cousin, them. Everybody you need to CC on the email. Yes. So we yes. can make things move and shake because you're absolutely right. If it is not written down, it did not happen. Queen P is the queen of writing an email. I'm about to write this email. I'm like, okay. See, I kick in the door and wave the four four, but she <laughs> will write an email. So she has tapered me down from kick, kicking in the door, and she's like, write that in the email. And I'm like, okay, no problem. And I write this email now. But before <laughs> I would go straight, they know I hear something I don't like. I go straight to their face. Hello. This is inappropriate. I do not appreciate that. You will not talk to my people like that. You do not want me to, and I just go off, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But you put it in mm-hmm. writing, it's a whole different thing. So now I, I've adopted Queen P's way of putting certain things in writing and I'm, I've been good as gold. I've been less upset. <laughs> yes, well, definitely, definitely. Queen H, yeah. there's nothing wrong with grassroots because that's what we come from. We come from, yes. you know, coming together collectively and and that's the way that we're seen normally we're not seen until it's a group of us yeah see the power of that pen it that one letter is is it will have the same result as 50 people standing outside especially if you see see some people okay yeah because once you write it it's tangible oh, it yeah. exists that's it correct happens. And exactly, it's there and it, it can't be taken away. But if we just go stand out there and protest if ain't nobody take no pictures or none of the news stations saw us, it never happened because mm-hmm. it wasn't documented. Mm-hmm. It was verbalized. I know that's right. Well, I got an email. But and I'm old right school now. grassroots too. I'm, <laughs> I, I, I still big mouth, but I do both. <laughs> that's, that's right. I, that's both. right. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. more of the story, people. You seeing something you don't like, write it down. Yeah. If you see something, say something and write it. And write Every, it. And write. <laughs> Every agency has a corporate, a corporate leadership team. And oh, those yeah. are the people that are on top. Those are the people that implement change. Those are the people that could address your concerns. And write it straight to them. The ED, executive director, CEO, whoever it is, you write it straight to them. Because believe me, when they ready to come down and let it rain down fire on 
that person's director, supervisor, and then you. Okay, yes. they will do so. So yeah, go straight. And that's to the how top. you get what you want. You, you sure put do. things in writing, things things work out in your favor because it's been reported. And once it's been reported, it cannot be unreported. That's <laughs> correct. Always get a name, a, a badge number, whatever, for people you come in contact with. If you go to a place more than one time, okay, maybe the first time, you know, Mary had an attitude, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Second time, Mary still got an attitude, then we got a problem. Okay, because Mary's here to do her job. That's right. And I'm here to get my services, please. And thanks. Yeah. Mary filled out that application and she went to both of those interviews before she started that job. So she wanted to be here. So she better get some customer service skills immediately. Yeah. And we need to establish patterns and trends. That is something that we don't do as people of color. I'm going to say Black people specifically, right? Mm -hmm. Most of the time we're getting services. We're just trying to get through it because God knows what's waiting for us on the other side. We just need to get through to get over, right? And we're not always thinking about, damn, every time I come here, me and Mary have to get into something. Well, every time I come here, me and Lisa got to get into something. People are not thinking that. They're just like, you know, it, it makes the experience worse for them Mm -hmm. even coming to where they have to come to the trek to get here to get the services or support they need now they're here they got to do with all this extra stuff people judging them and looking down on them and mistreating them mishandling them we will not stand for that so please start to establish patterns and trends if you're being treated unfairly or uncomfortably in any place that you're getting services write an email shoot a letter advocate and I think one of the morals of the story that I think made a great point, Queensky, is that there are services out here. There are mm-hmm. enough services out here to assist you in what you need to do to take care of your family, take care of yourself, and then hopefully avoid, I don't even want to say avoid, because like you said, you know, child welfare has its benefits there is helping hands in in child welfare as well. But to to avoid the negative stereotype uh, or section of that, right? Not having to be forced into services, but gladly come into services saying that I need help, right? right? Not feeling that you're neglectful, but that you're proactive in acquiring help for what's happening with, you know, you and your family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I Definitely. think that was a great point that you, you know, you raised. And I'm so glad that you were able to come on the show and educate us. Well, Listen, drop in knowledge. <laughs> thank you guys for having me. I, I really appreciate it. Yes, yes. So in closing, if you guys want to connect with us on social media, you can follow us on Twitter at Queens of Social Work Pod, or on Instagram at the Queens of Social Work. Or if you want more information on the topic we discussed today, feel free to take a look at our show notes or email us at thequeensofsocialwork at gmail.com. We really appreciate it if you rate, review, and follow us wherever you listen to your podcast. Thanks for listening. And thanks, Queen C. Yay! Thank you, ladies. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.